This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, a lot of good topics. Number one, we'll talk about Pratt & Whitney, 3D printing a entire jet engine. Uh, also, some interesting news with GE getting an airworthiness certificate for a 3D printed jet engine part. We'll talk about Diamond Aircraft. Uh, they've announced a future all-electric trainer. It's got some interesting technology, including some crazy fast uh, fast charging for the batteries. We'll talk about Boeing 787 manufacturing flaws that have just come out that Dreamliner is continuing to have problems. Uh, we'll also circle back to Boeing's uh, chief, uh, former chief technical pilot on the 737 MAX. Uh, he has been indicted on fraud charges, so we talked about that a couple weeks ago, but we wanted to now address the actual charges now that they've been filed. Uh, we'll talk quickly about air, airline overhead bins. And then our, in our EVTOL segment, Volodrone has had a bunch of news in the past week talking about their um, Volodrone uh, cargo drone. So, Alan, let's start with uh, Pratt & Whitney and 3D printing. Obviously, 3D printing is a pretty cool technology, um, and it's now you know finally making it into jet engines. So uh, the Gatorworks mm. program from Pratt & Whitney uh, is 3D printing a TJ150 turbine. Uh, entirely out of, you know, additive manufacturing. So do you feel like this is going to eventually go full scale? I mean, is this really, I guess with so many of these small parts, additive manufacturing, aka 3D printing, probably makes a lot of sense. Is that right? It does. On smaller engines, it would make a lot of sense, especially ones that don't have any humans in them, uh, which is what Pratt & Whitney's doing. It's making like a cruise missile kind of engine uh, that they have made for years using standard manufacturing techniques. So they're just essentially trying to drive the cost down by 3D printing the thing because they know so much about the engine. At this point, uh, they could reduce the overall expenses of manufacturing with it. I think this is just a, a starting point for Pratt & Whitney. And, and GE's been doing 3D printing for a while, too. And so they're slowly building up the confidence level to see how uh, parts fail, Right. You get, there's just, just so many unknowns and the unknown unknowns that you, you have to just put it in service and see how this how this works uh, and put it through the rigors of a test program, uh, a qualification program and beat the heck out of them, uh, these 3D printer parts to make sure they fail the way that we think they're going to fail. They're going to fail at the right amount of loads and the amount of torques and those kind of things. So the 3D printer is really interesting because. We've seen it a lot more in sort of the rocketry side. Uh, there's there's a company right now that's basically 3D printing a rocket, <laughs> like the whole thing. And so it's it's they've learned so much about the technology, about how to get one layer to bond to the other layer and how to uh, effectively deal with the, the heat you put into it and all these other different variables that are kind of on a microscopic scale of how you build these things. They're getting much better at it. And I think the, the advent of... Uh, you know, really supercomputers and being able to, to do some of these thermal analysis are really key to it. But Dan, don't you think that after 3D printing basically motors, uh, that there's other metal parts that you're going to start seeing on airplanes are going to be more 3D printed there than maybe machined, if, they, if, if they're complex enough? 
Yeah. Well, I assume they probably have to go through probably machining at the end anyway, right? I, mean, I don't know how 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 precise 3D printing can get, but it seems like, especially if these are jet engine parts, um, you know, maybe with some of these materials, like I know this uh, this this cobalt chrome sump cover, which was uh, what they've printed and gotten airworthiness. This is what this is GE. Um, that looks like a pretty meaty meaty part out of a looks like a pretty complex metal. So um, I don't know. That one seems like as I look at it, it's again seems really solid. Seems like that one's a really good fit for it. Um, and it, lo it looks like if it if it did require machining, it would be pretty simple. You know, it's like relatively ready to go. You know, and I don't know. I, I mean, I think there's a lot of this technology. Yeah, I think there's a lot of it is probably probably held close to the vest of like what they can and can't do. And I'm sure they're still developing it quite a bit. Yeah, and some and some metals, especially if you're dealing talking about high temperature metals that have special alloys to them, uh, they may not be really great at machining those parts because of the heat you put into the parts. So if you're going to spin that part like on a lathe or on a CNC machine, that not, may not be the most efficient way to do that. And it may be extra expensive because you're going to take a billet of this metal, which is probably expensive, and a third of it, half of it's going to end up on the floor. Uh, that's not smart. And then some of the ways they have to machine them and harden them and those kind of things can be super complicated. So 3D printing may lend itself to those kind of unique metal situations. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So moving on, Diamond Aircraft is announcing a uh, all-electric trainer, the EDA-40. And, you know, it looks like any other sort of training aircraft looks obviously very futuristic and, and sleek, but it's got some interesting uh, features, one of which is that their their battery module can be charged from depleted in under 20 minutes, which is crazy impressive to me. I mean, Alan, is this how far we've come already with battery tech? Uh, I, I think, well, I think so. But just because they're living off the, the car technology on the on the supercharger, is that what the Tesla calls it now, the supercharger? It was rapid charger, the supercharger is what you're at now? Yeah, and I don't... Yeah, rapid's, rapid's not cool enough for Elon Musk, come on. So what comes after a super ultra ultra meg no mega charger the mega charger it just dumps it yeah it just dumps the energy in like a bucket <laughs> you just get a bucket of electrons and just pour them in there it's like uh you ever watch oceans 11 uh that the the remake one right uh when they're gonna let out that EMP device <laughs> in the van in the parking lot and he's just like he's covering himself and he pushes the button and then boom there's this huge EMP that's what it's gonna be like recharging some of these <laughs> some of these things because it's so much massive energy like do I take the credit cards out of my wallet and set them over on the on the side over here while I do this because they're gonna be massive amounts of current running into those batteries to charge them at that rate right uh, I used to. Years ago, I used to work at Alcoa as a summer intern, which which is a beautiful thing. I'm really glad that they let me participate in that. But, uh, you know, at Alcoa, they make aluminum and, and they use huge amounts of DC current to, to smelt aluminum. And so you had to take off your watch, you had to leave your wallet behind because anything that was magnetic, magnetically based was going to die. <laughs> Essentially, it's going to die. And I'm just starting to feel like we're reaching that point on these chargers where like, I'm not sure I want to press the button <laughs> without me being about 10 feet away from it. Right. Uh, so I, I think these chargers are really fascinating because it's changing the way we think about it. It wasn't, it wasn't the whole thing about battery powered airplanes is this going to take hours and hours and hours to charge? That was the whole holdback. You'd fly for half an hour, it'd take you three hours to charge. 
well, who wants to do that? Because I can put fuel in it in 10 minutes and be back out and flying again. But when you have rapid chargers like this, where you could, especially on a trainer, you know, where you're out for an hour, you're down for 20, 30 minutes, and then you're out back out again, these rapid chargers make infinite sense. And it really changes the dynamic and the cost structure of these airplanes. Yeah. And it says that the, the, uh, the EDA 40 will have a 90 minute uh, flight time. That's what they expect. You know, it could be more, it could be less, you don't know, as the, but, you know, as battery technology evolves, that will get obviously better. And of course, you know, there's also the idea of swappable batteries. This one, uh, that's not what they're claiming here that, but that could always be something in the future where maybe companies just start building in sort of like that modularity where whatever houses the battery, uh, components in there, they could just pull it out, put the next better technology in there. And now they're upgraded, ready to go. So, cause this is going to change, I would say really, really, we were just talking off camera about how charging technology just for com consumer electronics has changed so much. Like my laptop charger is tiny now, uh, for my MacBook air and everything's faster. I mean, even just five, 10 years ago, like it would take a long time to charge your phone. So we've come a long way in, in five years, 10, especially 10 years. So yeah, I think, um, these trainers are going to make increasingly more sense and that downtime, cause you still got to, you know, you get out of the plane. I assume I've never flown one of these planes, but I assume you want to get out, go to the bathroom, grab something to eat, grab a glass of water. Um, you know, do your hail, your hail Marys, like thank, thank, thank uh, the Lord that you're still, you know, you're back. Um, and that's going to eat up 15 minutes and then you're pretty much ready to go if it's 20 minutes. Yeah. So it seems like you don't have to get to instant charge or anything. You don't have to swap the battery out in five minutes, I'm sure. But if you're under that 30 minute, 30 minute window, that seems pretty efficient where you're probably good to go. It's probably as fast as it needs to be. Right. And the key to all these trainers at the moment and the pitch that uh, buy and I'm sure Diamond's going to make, too, is that the, the cost to operate those airplanes is a fraction, a fifth of what it is to uh, operate a, a, a standard uh, low uh, aircraft fuel, aviation fuel. 100 low lead airplane uh, and all the, the pistons and all the rework and all the things that have to happen with the internal combustion engine, that goes away. So once you buy it, your operating costs are so low that you, you recoup the extra cost. I'm sure there's going to be an extra cost to buy the airplane, but you recoup it so fast that financially it makes sense in the long term to, to, to move to electric. So obviously what buy has seen in the marketplace that buy has laid out Diamond is now sniffing at it and saying, yeah, and by selling a lot of airplanes, maybe we ought to get into this marketplace. Well, moving on to, to bigger airplanes, uh, especially bigger embattled airplanes, uh, the Boeing company is still struggling with the 787. It's just released uh, info that the uh, number of parts, uh, titanium specifically, were improperly manufactured over the past couple of years. And, uh, it doesn't immediately affect the safety of flights, but it's just yet another issue with the 787 Dreamliner. Yeah. And, and it's right at a turbulent time for Boeing, obviously. And the 787's had a number of other sort of manufacturing issues that have popped up. And as they've moved the factory from the Seattle area to South Carolina, now, all these things are coming to light. So it's just like stacking issue on issue on issue. And how, at what point do you say, okay, all right, everybody just stop for a minute. Stop, stop, stop. Let's figure out where we're at. But this issue with titanium parts is really interesting because usually on any sort of metal part, there's all kinds of things you do 
to the part to verify that the that the metallurgy is correct, that it's been machined in the proper way, that it's been heat treated in the in the in the wet and the method that's been specified on the drawing. So there's like checkpoints there of the part going through the, the manufacturing process and, and Boeing as an incoming receiver of that part should be getting a lot of data package to go along with that those titanium parts. So the question is like, why did Boeing get erroneous data from the manufacturer? Did Boeing not review all that? Which is hard to believe. Uh, so there's a little bit of like shadiness going on here because everybody in aviation knows metal parts are super critical to <laughs> aircraft. And we've been manufacturing them for almost a hundred years. The air metal parts, especially titanium parts, um, get a little more oversight. So I'm, I'd be shocked if Boeing looked the other way if flawed parts came in. Most likely there was a paperwork screw up on the manufacturer or they didn't, weren't highlight or they weren't running the test correctly. One of those things. But yeah, don't you just feel like, like, can Boeing get out of their own way at the moment? It's just, no matter what happens, it's just something else in the news cycle. My gosh. Well, we've had consistent bad Boeing news to, to talk about for pretty much the life of this podcast. So, yeah, I mean, you're not you're not wrong thinking that. that there just continues to be one after the next, after the next, after the next. And speaking of which, uh, they have announced charges. So the former Boeing pilot... Um, Mark Forkner has been uh, charged with fraud. So he is being charged both with two counts of fraud involving aircraft parts in interstate commerce and four counts of wire fraud, maximum penalty of 20 years in prison for each count of wire fraud and 10 years in prison for each count of fraud involving aircraft parts in interstate commerce. So um, Alan, have, has your feelings about this changed? No. And the, the charges don't feel right at the moment. Uh, fraud involving aircraft parts crossing crossing state lines doesn't feel right here. Is it, <laughs> if there's anything that, that, that a flight test pilot can be, uh, especially a certification one or a delegated engineering representative, can be dinged for, it's improper paperwork, submittal of paperwork, right? There's just, there's just a there are a series of uh, of approvals that are made if the if they're if the engineers delegated to make those approvals uh, that the flight test pilot would sign off on. So there'd be a, typically a report or a flight test card, and they would sign off and said, "Yeah, all this all this stuff has been done properly according to the FAA regulations." That I think you can hold a DER accountable for crossing interstate lines. With the aircraft parts, doesn't make any sense here. It seems like they're reaching. And that's where it's, and I start to think, is the prosecutor just trying to throw things at a wall to see what sticks at the moment? Because either you have a case that they fraudulently filled out an, uh, an 8110, and, or they're an ODA, so probably an 8100-9, uh, form fraudulently did that, or they didn't. Either they complied to the FAA regulations, or they didn't. And so if they didn't, and they knew that they didn't, and they fraudulently signed a form, then that gets into wire fraud, I guess, because he probably emailed the form. <laughs> is, that, is that what happened? And he didn't probably email it to him, you know? I, I, uh, the forms, yeah, I'm not even sure that ha would happen. So I'm not sure where the, where the wire fraud comes from. Where, where, and there's no details. I, have, I, need, to, I need to download the, uh, 
the case to see if there's more details about uh, what they're specifically talking about. Like on this day, a flight test pilot, so-and-so did X in violation of uh, U.S. code, da 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 Awesome, right? But we're not getting that right now. You know, someone from the attorney general's office is 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 putting out a press release. That's not that to me doesn't answer the question of this actually happened or not, because the defense can't argue back, right? The defense has got to shut up and and take those blows. And so they're trying to portray this out in the out in uh, you know in the common in the commoners. So that's commoners out here. And they try to make their case out here in the public instead of making the case in the courtroom. And I wonder if the case in the courtroom is going to go that well because it doesn't – some of the charges don't make sense to me at this point. But I, I could be wrong. Yeah, wire fraud, I, I realize it's a kind of a vague term. It basically just is, involves any scheme to defraud another person by means of electronic communication. So I think that's essentially referring to his emails um, and when – I guess when he was asked for information – you know, not giving, you know, what he knew. And of course, this this goes back to, you know, my perspective on this has been that, yeah, I think this this shows a pretty blatant disregard, which is what they've said um, for the safety of the of the Max when he knew, like he argued that they should not include the MCAS system in the pilot handbook uh, because of the way it was at certain specifications. And then later those specifications changed he knew it and still didn't disclose that it was going to kick on earlier and should probably be in the pilot handbook. So that seems like where the, if that's electronic communication, again, I'm not a lawyer, um, that maybe is where that comes from. Um, Because obviously, like, the world is a digital place, right? So if you mislead anyone on on using the interwebs or a text message or emails, then that falls under wire fraud. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean... I, I think I think someone needs to to come to justice for this, but I don't know. We'll see. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out in the courtroom. But they said, you know, a couple of weeks ago that charges were coming. They have indeed uh, arrived, and so we'll see how this works out in the future for for Mr. Forkner and Boeing. Of course, it seems like Boeing is they just got a modest fine, and that's it for them. But He's going to face a lot more, a lot more trouble. And of course, like you said, it, it, it's not always just what you do, but how brazen it was. And he was very, very brazen about, you know, sending messages about how he won, how he Jedi mind tricked the FAA, et cetera, et cetera, stuff like that, um, into not, or Jedi mind tricked some airlines into minimum, minimal pilot training. And I think that's where people were like, you know what, this is, this is pretty unsavory, unsavory behavior. So I don't know. We'll see how it plays out in court. I'm sure it'll be a, a protracted legal battle. But what the defense present their case? I want to. I want to hear what the defense has to say. I want to see what their story is because that'll add a lot of light to it. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Um, moving on, the uh, and this is hopefully going to maybe calm people down on flights. They're adding uh, airline bin space in uh, Boeing and Airbus aircraft. Uh, their uh, overhead bins are getting bigger, which can accommodate pretty much anyone's, uh, bags, which I guess I wonder why this didn't happen sooner. Um, they've always been cramped and it's, it is really irritating when you, I'm only carrying on, I'm not checking a bag and now I've got a, now I have to check my roller bag because it's full by the time I get on the plane. That's really irritating and it makes anyone want to start 
almost come to blows sometimes. You're like, I know it's going to be another hour now to get my bag after this flight. Like, I packed for this. I prepared for this. Why do I have to check mine? Um, it's not fair. I don't know. But do you think this is going to calm people down, maybe get people less angry on these planes? Well, I think there's two different approaches going on with the airlines on the larger bins, which is fascinating because it's it's the case of it's obfuscation <laughs> in marketing. Uh, because let's just, just take two different airlines, United Airlines and uh, Southwest. So Southwest has decided not to go with larger bins and United has essentially gone, I think Alaska too, uh, has gone with larger bins. Uh, and, uh, so that's, it's one of those differentiators in terms of a, a product, even though you're both flying from you know Miami to Dallas, wherever you're going, you have two different uh, pieces to the cabin, which people make decisions about. So they're just sort of mudding the waters with the, with the, the uh, overhead space. Now, I, I think one of the really interesting pieces is, and I can't figure that out why this matters, but I was thinking about this the other day. If I'm allowing people to check luggage in, which you still do, right? In United, you can still check luggage in. They, they, they gig you 50 bucks a bag. Um, but there's a, there's a person down there on the tarmac which is loading the bags into the airplane, right? That person, that person doesn't go away when you have a larger bin space, right? So there's really no cost savings there, right? So when you put up friction like United does, and I think Delta does too, where you, they start charging per bag. I, mean, I think it was uh, JetBlue doing the same thing. Some of the lower discount carriers will do this. They, they charge you for uh, sometimes carry-on, but mostly for check luggage. If they're charging for check luggage, obviously everybody's going to take their luggage onto the airplane. I'm not sure that makes any sense, right? Uh, because I still got the person down on the tarmac ready to load bags. I'm still paying that person. Uh, is there just fewer of them? Like, what is what is the upside benefit for the airline for having larger bins? Why don't they just, like, get rid of the baggage fee, let the guy on the tarmac load the bags in, and call it a day, like Southwest does? Isn't that odd? Well, I guess part of the problem is that when you are forced to check your bag at the gate, they don't collect a fee for that because you're supposed to be allowed to carry, you're supposed to be allowed to carry one on. And then if you don't, you're not allowed to, then they do it for free. So they probably don't want to have to deal with that. Plus it pisses people off. So that's the only benefit I can see. Cause I think you're right. Like they would rather incentivize people to check bags so they can collect their fees. Well, yeah, I, w I would think so. And in the case of Southwest, I think it's such a huge game changer. So when you fly Southwest, this is my opinion. If I haven't flown Southwest a lot, I'm a A-list or A-list preferred on Southwest. It, they fly with a lot of kids, right? A lot of kids fly that airline because, you know, the kids are taking luggage and it starts to add up. If I'm flying United and I got, you know, a family of four or five and everybody's got luggage, you know, you're, you're it's like buying another ticket. That's essentially what it is. And baggage fees, unless you haul that stuff on, on board. And if you have a, a five-year-old, um, I'm not sure that how that happens, right? You get the five-year-old rolling through the airport with the rolling luggage. That's kind of a pain in the backside. Like, why don't we check this thing? Which is what Southwest does. And families love Southwest. So I, I'm not sure. I, I love bigger bin space. Like if, if it's me personally, awesome. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense uh, just because it keeps the flight attendants from having to deal with fights. <laughs> particularly the international routes, right? I tell you what, you do get pissed off when, number one, as you're starting to, you know, you scan your ticket and you walk down the, the jet bridge and you see someone with too many items, like they have their carry-on bag, they have a backpack, and then they have another bag. And you're like, you flight, atten flight attendant, like stop them. Like they have an extra one. They're clearly going to throw it up there. 
or they get on the plane and if they only have two items they still throw both of them into the overhead bin they don't put anything under their seat so now there's just less space for everyone because they're breaking the rules and you know flight attendants do a good job but sometimes there seems to be a, a little bit of a laissez-faire a- attitude about enforcing the look you don't get to throw everything into the you can't you can't throw your coat and your laptop bag and your carry-on all into the overhead because now someone's got to check their bag and that and that gets pretty irritating so if it eliminates that great i also wonder how much of southwest because look you're never not paying for baggage fees on i mean on southwest you're not paying baggage fees but is the ticket price you know a certain amount higher because you're not it's got to be right i mean i would assume that it is i don't know but if they started charging for fees and stripped that out of the overall ticket price maybe you know i don't know so i always price check and compare because sometimes like americans cheaper than um southwest but then if you start to compare the baggage that you might be taking then you're like okay well maybe i should go southwest because it's going to be a 20 dollar difference but i save a 40 dollar bag fee so then all right i go that way right but i don't know it just depends and yeah some of the lower cost fare like what is it spirit they you don't get a carry-on at their cheapest rate so you pay for your carry-on and you pay for a check bag if you want one you know which sometimes that works sometimes that can make it um with a personal item just a backpack and put under the seat if i'm just going white for one day or something two-day trip so yeah it just depends i think from the marketing perspective of this is just so fascinating because we have already forgotten about the things that i think matter like is the airplane clean or are the are the flight attendants sort of prepared and and ex- experts at what they're doing uh are, are this is there plenty of leg room right those go out the window because now we're fighting about the stupid baggage fees well, yeah, right, 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 right. So that's a, it's an obfuscation piece, right? So they've, they've muddied the water so much, you forget about the, the things that when you get on the airplane, you real, I really hate, which is I can't fit into the seat. <laughs> My legs are so long, I can't actually physically get into the slot. And that I find really annoying. That's why I love flying Southwest, because they, I usually can get into an exit row, which has extra leg room, and then... Bingo. You know, it's, I love it. It's fantastic. Well, big, big Southwest fan here. They need your support now more than ever because they've done a rel- rather poor job recently uh, in the news cycle with PR and leaving a lot of people stranded. So, yeah, I'm, I'm ambivalent to, to Southwest. In the past, I used to like them more. Today, I had too many bad experiences where not so much. Moving on to our EVTOS segment, we're going to talk about uh, Volocopter and their Volo drone. Uh, their heavy lift EVTOL can carry 440 pounds, and they've done some test flights uh, recently. So, Alan, what were your thoughts as you watched the the Volo the Volo drone do its uh, you know a couple minute flight recently? I, I love this thing. I think there's so many uses for it. I don't particularly like the use of carrying 440 pounds over a city. I don't really feel comfortable with that yet maybe i will but i think there's a a thousand other uses for this sort of technology and the first one that comes to mind is like aerial spraying of fields right uh that that we now do with those big air tractors and there's a pilot and he's got a he's got this big tank on the airplane and and it you know he swoops down in and sprays the field and swoops back up that's a very dangerous job by the way that that's crazily dangerous uh because power lines and other things birds whatnot right uh but 
you know, a Volo drone would make it a lot of sense because you could load that thing up with uh, herbicide, whatever they're doing, uh, and, and let it fly on a, a predetermined pathway. Boom, done. And I think there's a lot of other applications for it that maybe not in the big city. Firefighting, probably, yeah. You, obviously, you could carry water and you could spray water. I know I worked with a, a fellow engineer a couple of years ago on a project like that where they've it was on a helicopter, but um, it has a big nozzle on it and they're just pumping water like in an apartment building that was on fire, right? To pump water to the top floors until the firefighters can really do something about it. This could fill that role, right? So I think once we see the Volo drone in service in a couple different environments, it's going to make people think, uh, uh, think or thinking outside the box a little bit like, oh, I could really solve a problem with this. And I may not have to own it, right? I may just be able to rent it when I need it. That could be a, a real, real game changer. And it's fascinating that Volocopters sort of really kind of first to market because of the size of the packages they could carry. And they're ready, right? This is where like Beta's trying the same thing. Uh, Eviation's trying something similar on carrying packages. But Volodrone has a very specific envelope in which it would operate in and a very unique skill set. Like it can hover, <laughs> right? Uh, that And there's no no pilot on it. So, I mean, those, those things seem really interesting to me because I think there's so many applications, particularly in the United States and, and other sort of rural areas, I think it may make infinite sense. Yeah. Well, and that's a good point. That, and I think that's good for Volocopter in general, that they don't have just one, that they have, you know, they're hedging their bets a little bit, not being committed to just one marketplace. Like I think what you said about crop spraying makes a ton of sense. And yeah, you could see a, a Volo drone doing that. And now they don't have to worry so much about all the revenue coming only from urban air mobility and air taxing, right? Because that's an un unproven market. We don't know how much people are going to want that. But would people want to have a, a GPS programmed crop spraying route that they push a button and it go, just goes and takes care of it? That's how they're doing. Um, that's how uh, all these uh, combines and tractors are, you know, if you get in a modern um, combine now, it's doing GPS. That's how those lines are amazingly. They're like, completely straight perfect yeah and that's all just gps controlled so this seems like the next um evolution of that you could certainly see tons of agricultural uses not to mention transportation um yeah pumping water makes more sense probably like the bucket stuff that i was thinking about like firefighting probably doesn't make as much sense because a 400 pound capacity is only 50 gallons of water so not a significant amount there but then again wouldn't be exhausted wouldn't be as dangerous you know just go down to the river and keep coming up with more buckets. So there could be a lot of uses. You're right. Yeah. Let's just talk about California. Cause you raised like, it's only say it's 50 gallons, right? 50 gallons of water, rough, roughly. Uh, and, and some of the California wildfires that have happened this particular year and the last couple of years have been driven by lightning strikes. And I, I know one in particular that has been relatively large sort of on the border between California, Northern California and Nevada, that, that fire started with a lightning strike, and people on the ground saw that thing smoldering for, like, weeks, right? That it just kind of sat there for a while and kind of, like, uh, you know, maybe, the wind, maybe it'll rain, and maybe it'll go out, or maybe it'll snuff itself out, run out of fuel, whatever, and then, boom, you know, you get a nice windy day and the right temperatures, and bang, that thing explodes, and then you got hundreds of thousands of acres that are burning. If you had something like a, a Volo drone with 50 gallons of water, and you say, okay, there is a small fire up on that hill right now, and I don't want to turn to a large fire. 
Let's get that thing up on the hill and dump some water on it and see if we can stop it now. That's a huge advantage. Huge. Yeah. And you could, you know, place them on their own little, you know, they're, they're, there's three of them in a station in a high risk area, right? So they just like deploy all three of them, go, they go make three runs each, put a couple hundred gallons of water down and you're good to go. So yeah, maybe that does make sense. Yeah. I think it does. I think it does. And I'd be shocked if they're not in Northern California right now trying to sell this. Shocked. Yeah. And of course, one of the things uh, Volocopter is doing is trying to create a sort of mobile landing pad. And I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure they they see a use for it. But I don't know, Alan, I mean, why do you need and this is a, a really cool little like mobile device looks like they can, they can pull it on a trailer and then it sort of just unfolds. And then it looks like a it looks like a looks like a trampoline, um, just a couple, you know, like a foot or two off the ground. And because this thing's only, you know, a Volo drone fully loads only 1300 pounds, you know, this uh, little, vert, this little portable helipad can support it. I mean, why do they need this? Is it just for like a marshy area or like a really uneven area? Um, obviously, if you're on the top of a, of a, of a cargo or a, of, a, of a building or a parking deck, probably wouldn't need this. But what use case do you see these for? Sandy, rocky areas where you're going to throw rocks up into the rotors. And which is a problem like when uh, you know, United States our, um, military has been in places with a lot of sand, like in the Middle East, and how much damage it does to the helicopters and to the blades. So if you can cover up the, the soil, <laughs> it's just going to extend the lifetime of the aircraft a good bit, which makes a lot of sense, right? It's, a, it's just like uh, Elon Musk was talking about recovering the, uh, you know, the, the, the first stage of the rockets and then also the, the, the nose cone coverings like – that thing is worth $10 million. If $10 million fell out of the sky, would you want to catch it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'd make a lot of sense to catch it if we could, because I could just put $10 million back in my pocket. And I, I, I think this is kind of the same way as if I put down some sort of covering on the ground, I'm going to save myself literally hundreds of thousands of dollars over time. So I, it, the this sort of mat system covers its costs in like the first 10 flights. Um, and so it's, 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 it's a really smart idea. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode of the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to leave us a review anywhere you're listening and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, wherever you're listening or watching. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardarrow.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.